Well, what do you do when you break something so badly there's no way to fix it? That it can't be fixed. So when you don't have the tool in your shed, you don't have maybe the energy, the money, the wisdom to fix what it is that's broken. If you were here last week, that's, that's where we left Moses. Moses was in this moment where he had been raised in Egypt, but was also an Israelite, had lived in Pharaoh's house, and yet also was connected to this slave people. And, and it looked like he was the perfect person to, to go to Pharaoh and deliver Israel from their slavery. And instead, what Moses does is he, he commits murder, murders an Egyptian. He's rejected by the Egyptians and the Israelites, and he's left to flee into the desert with no family, no friends, having completely ruined his life. And the, the distance between Exodus 2 and Exodus 3 and 4, where we're at this morning, is 40 years, which means Moses had 40 years to ask that question. What do you do when you ruined your life? What do you do when you break, you've broken something and you can't put it back together? My guess is when we ask that question, probably most of us in this room have one of two reactions. One, your life's pretty well under control. There, there isn't a lot broken in your life you don't feel like you can put back together. That ultimately, anything that's fallen apart in your life, you found a tool in your shed to bring it out and, and fix whatever it is that, that's broken. And yet, I would ask, if Moses, whom God will use to do incredible things, will write five books of the Bible, if he could break, in, break his life in a way that he couldn't put it back together. Why couldn't you? That you're not immune to the realities of Moses' own heart, which led him to ruin his life. And I wouldn't for any of us be so quick to dismiss this reality that all of us are maybe one mistake away from really massively failing. Not just a, oops, I kind of screwed this up, I'm sorry, but like a massive Moses-level failure of our lives. Most of us are one step away from that sort of mistake. Well, my guess is most of us probably don't fall in that camp. Most of us probably fall in the camp of, of really fear is something that, that, that's a part of our lives. In, in some ways, maybe even consumed by it. That we know there are things that we can't do, that we can't fix, and that's a part of why we even feel not up to the task or feel overwhelmed. Maybe it's, it's disappointing your parents, not living up to their expectations. Or your job, that you might lose it or you might fail to accomplish what it is you hope to accomplish in your life, your career. Or maybe it's just your kids, that you'll, you're, you're, you fear you'll, you'll do something that would prevent them from growing or flourishing in the way that you, you long for them to grow and flourish. Well, let me just ask, what, what failure do you, do you fear? What keeps you up at night? Now for me, it is that parent Thing. I mean, just having a three-year-old and a one-year-old at home and realizing there are so many ways that I can mess them up and feeling like there are so many ways I'm really good at messing them up. And even, even the good things we do together, like I read eight books with them, but should I have read nine? Like, will that impede their development because I only read eight books? I mean, there's just so many places to feel, to, to see the reality of failure creeping in and feeling that weight. And as I reflect on that question, you know, where does this anxiety come from? What, why is a fear of failure, generally for most people, pretty constantly present with us. Why is that? And my answer, and I think you might say a similar, I think you would say a similar thing, is, is it's how you and I structure, frame our lives. That, that we, we've taken in sort of our, our cultural message about how to see our, ourselves. 
which is the only way you can really be free of anxieties, is look within yourself, see what you really want to do. What are your deepest desires? What will make you happiest? What will give you the most joy? Look inside yourself, determine what those things are, and then go do them. And one of my, my favorite bands, the Avett Brothers, they, in one of their songs, they put it like this, decide what to be and go be it. If that's our cultural advice to us, but the only way to be, be free of fear is to look inside yourself, decide what you make, what will make you happy, what you love, what you want to do, and go and do it and make yourself happy. But there's a problem with that. That, that reality is why we tend to build our identity and our culture around our careers, our kids, our families, our romantic relationships, or our marriages. Do we, do we look for what will make us happy, then we go after it. But the problem, of course, is those are the things that give us the most anxiety. Right? Our marriages, our romantic relationships, our jobs, our kids, our friends, our, our careers. Because if I build my identity around my career, if I look inside myself and decide what will make me most happy is a good career, so I'm going to give my life to that, then my career, it's not just a job. Right? It's, it's not just what I do on Monday to Saturday. It's, it's who I am. Which means if I, I fail at a job or if I lose my job, I don't just lose a job, I lose myself. It's the same way with kids, it's the same way with your marriage. If that's who you are, if you lose that, if you fail at that, you lose yourself. And of course Moses, it's exactly what he's done. He was a deliverer. He had been put right in the perfect moment to deliver Israel and he failed. And he's had 40 years to reflect on that question and that's how you live. Of course, we'll live in fear. Of course, fear will determine us because it's a crushing way to live. Because any career, any romantic relationship, any marriage, any kids, any friendship is fraught with all kinds of potential to fail. All kinds of potential to, to mess you up or to mess the other person up. So anybody, anybody encouraged yet? That we need another way. And Moses' life shows us another way, not from what Moses will do, but Moses' story, his life is about to get interrupted. You and I, we need a, a way to deal with our fears so that we'll have the courage to face a life of, uh, where failure is still possible, but we have courage in the face of it, where we can go and do big things or do things that God calls us to, not out of fear, but out of joy. And if we can enter the desert with Moses, this next stage of, of his life, what we'll find is, is what Moses needed was not to better understand himself, but to, to know God. Right? The Moses answer isn't it's not to look within and, and see what would make Moses happy, then go and do it. No, it's God has to interrupt his life. And if there's anything that we see in Exodus 3 and 4, it's that the only way Moses could know himself is if he knew God, knew what God truly was. And the, the same thing is true for you and I. The only way you're going to know yourself to know God. And so God here interrupts Moses' life and reveals himself to Moses in, in four places, in four ways. In God's, in God's name, in the fire, in the sign, and in the night. So in the, the fire is where we start in Exodus 3, what Corey read for us. In Exodus 3, those, those six verses, there's a lot packed in there, and they, they especially tell us two details about Moses' life that, that we can't miss. The first one being that Moses, he's a shepherd, which may not mean much to us, but, but Egyptian, the last profession you would want to be is a shepherd. So Moses, as an Egyptian, has completely failed. He's doing the one job no self-respecting Egyptian would do, which means for Moses to go back to Egypt would be to go back in shame in many ways, to go back as a despised shepherd. 
But it's not just that. We're told Moses is on Mount Horeb, which shouldn't mean anything to you, but Mount Horeb has another name in the Bible, Mount Sinai. And Sinai, in, in the Hebrew, in the, the language that the, the mountain is named in, it means parched land. And much of Moses' life is, is surrounded by water, and this parched land, parched land mountain is meant to, to point out to us, Moses is far away from water. He's in the desert. He's dry. His life is dry. But it's not just that. What's interesting is, is Moses, when he fled Egypt and Israel, he went to the land of Midian. And Mount Sinai is a long way from Midian, far longer than any shepherd needs to walk to care for his, his sheep. What we know is, is Sinai is on the long road from Midian to Egypt. And so Moses has made a long track in the direction of his home country, but he can't go all the way. He has to stop. And you can see in that moment that He's longing for a life that he had ruined, he had given up. He's still looking for a place to fit in. Moses is still an immigrant. He's still in exile. He's still living in a place where he doesn't have true family. He doesn't fit anywhere, and he feels that. No doubt a feeling many of us have had, whether it's, it's going to a new school, moving to a new community, being a part of a new job. But Moses feels that in a way I'm sure many of us or few of us have felt. Estranged from his family, from his his home from his land. And so Moses is there on the mountain, feeling that, wrestling through that when he sees something. Something as a shepherd he would have seen many times and something he would have never seen before as a shepherd. He sees a bush on fire. Which if you're, you're a shepherd, you instantly would ask, why is a bush on fire? Because bushes, listen, they burn up fast. They're not good for heat. They're not good to cook. So there's no reason to light a bush on fire. If you're a shepherd, if you're out in the dust, it makes no sense. And yet he looks, there's this bush on fire, but it doesn't go out. It stays on fire. And so Moses walks over to the bush. And the bush speaks, or out of the bush, a voice speaks. Moses, Moses. And instantly in that moment, Moses would have known whoever was addressing him was addressing him out of, of care and love. Because any time you would use someone's name twice in, in that, that culture, that language, it was endearment. It was loving. You, d- you did that with your friends, with your family, with your parents, with your kids. Moses, Moses, Moses knew whoever was addressing him loved him, cared for him. But then the bush speaks again. Take off your shoes. Don't come any closer. You're standing on holy ground. And so Moses takes off his shoes Stays, doesn't come closer, and the God, the, out of the, the bush a voice speaks again and says, I'm, I'm the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. And Moses can't take it, so he hides his face. And it's this just really weird, interesting story. This shepherd in the middle of nowhere on a mountain, a bush on fire that invites him to come and then says, stop, don't come any closer. And this encounter at the bush, it reveals something about, about God that you, you have to take in if you're going to know yourself. If you're going to have a life where you can deal with your failures, you can deal with fear, you're going to really know who you are. You have to know what Moses is learning here about God, which is one, God, God wants you to know him. That we see this in a number of ways, but the most profound just is address, Moses, Moses. But beyond that, when God speaks to Moses, he says, I'm the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And what's happening there is God's not just saying, hey, I, I'm that God that maybe you've heard about. He's, he's actually saying to Moses, Moses, I'm the God of your family, the family that you're estranged from, the family that you're exiled from. I'm here to invite you back. The God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, 
the God of Jacob. God wants Moses to know him and to be in his family. And God wants the same for you, for me. God wants us to know him, but, but we, you, can't be near God. Take off your shoes. Stop where you are. Do not come closer. And then Moses hides, hides his face. There's this amazing contrast happening here. And the reality is that if Moses couldn't stand and look at, in the presence of God, what, what chance do I have? What chance do you have? That the greater the flame, the more you have to keep your distance. That's right. That's why we humans, we can't look at the sun. Because looking at the sun means we will go blind. It's too bright. It's too good. It's too pure. And if that's true of the sun, how much more true would it be of us in being near to God? At the moment is, is a hint to Moses. It's a hint to us that there's something wrong. If Moses is being invited into the presence of God and yet can't go, there's something wrong. Either with us or with God. And this should, should deeply disturb us, this tension of come, but not any closer. You can know God, but you can't be near him. And I think that's important for us to press in, even, even whether you're a Christian or, or whether you're not. That, that most religion, especially in the Bible, throughout the scriptures, anytime that, that someone encounters God, there's fear, there's distance, there's separation. There's this moment of don't come any closer. And yet the Bible also says God loves you, he cares for you, he wants to be near you, he wants to adopt you into his family. How can both be true? And Moses is living in that tension here in the bush. And those questions aren't answered yet. But God reveals himself to to Moses in the fire. Those two things. God wants to know you, but you can't come near. God loves you, but take off your shoes. So from there, God reveals Moses in another way. In Exodus 3, verses 7 to 22, in, in God's name. That Here's what happens in, in verse 7. God continues speaking. Moses is, is afraid. He covers his face. God keeps talking. The Lord said, I surely have seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt and have heard their cry because of their taskmasters. I know their sufferings, and I have come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up out of that land to a good and broad land, a land flowing with milk and honey. Those of you who were here last week, remember Exodus 1 and 2, it's just a spiral descent. Things just keep getting worse and worse and worse. And, and you begin to wonder, is, does God have a plan here? Does he, is he figuring, is he up there? Does he see what's happening? And then the end of Exodus 1 and 2, verses 23 through 25, you get these four verbs where we're told that God heard, that God remembered, that God saw, and God knew. And despite the, the downward descent of that, 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 those two chapters, God is very present. He sees, he hears, he remembers, he knew. And here in Exodus 3, 7, we, hear the, we see the same verbs come up again. Or that God, he heard the cry. He's seen the affliction of his people. He knew their sufferings. Now this is the answer to Exodus 1 and 2. God is getting ready to act. He has his plan and he's about to reveal his plan to Moses. That Moses is standing on Mount Sinai by himself in exile. And what God says to Moses in the next few verses is, Moses, what's about to happen is you are going to soon be surrounded by your entire nation, by all of Israel on this same mountain, worshiping me. You're going to go down to Egypt. You're going to bring everyone back to this mountain and worship me here. It's an outlandish promise. And Moses doesn't want to go. And Moses, through the course of this narrative, Exodus 3 and 4, will give four responses when God says to come. And Moses' first response is, who am I? 
God, who am, why would you ask me to do that? Do you know my story, right? Who am I? And God responds not by telling Moses who he is. He responds by saying, Moses, I'm going to be with you. I promise I will be with you every step of the way. I'm going with you. It doesn't matter who you are. I'm present. I'm there. So Moses offers a second objection. Well, God, I don't know your name. If I, if I go and say this, this God is going to free this, these slaves, what name should I tell them? Who are you? What's your name? And so God tells him his name. I am who I am. It's enigmatic. Right? It's not clear. We, it's almost like I think I know what that means, but I have no idea what that means. So what does it mean? A lot. And we could spend a whole sermon here, but let me say two things. The first, and maybe the most important thing, is that when God says, I am, he's saying that I'm self-existence. I'm the creator of all things. I'm life itself. I don't need anything else to exist. I just am. Moses, you need my breath. You have been, you've been brought into life because I brought you into life. I don't need that. I just am. There's something else here that's important, because that verb, I am who I am, is present all through Exodus 3 and 4, and it's especially present when God looks at Moses and says, Moses, I will be with you. I will be with you. He says it again in Exodus 3, 12. He said, God said, but I will be with you, and this shall be the sign for you that I have sent you when you have brought the people out of Egypt. You shall serve God on this mountain. Moses, I will be with you. That this, God's name, it's not just... What we call him, it's, it's a sign of who he is, that I will be with you. Moses, or God is saying to Moses, Moses, I'm your God. The God of your father, I'm, I'm your God. I'm going to be present with you in whatever it is you face in life. And whatever I tell you I'm going to do, I'm going to do. I am who I am. I will be with you. And that's why God keeps telling Moses over and over in these, these two chapters, I'm the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. In that day, every other god was known as the god of the water, the god of, of the, the Nile River, the, god, the snake god, the sun god. Everyone else was, or every other god was a god of an object. The god of the Bible in this time is the only god who says, I'm a god of a person, of Abraham. Moses, I'm your god. That's what it means when he says, I am, I am who I am. I will be with you. I am the god of Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and even Moses. And so you're beginning to see why, why you have to know God in order to know yourself. In order to, to look past the potential of failure in your own life, to look past the fears, the anxieties. And Moses had failed miserably. I mean, as bad as you can fail. He's in exile, he's by himself, but it doesn't matter. That the most fund, fundamental reality to Moses' life is not Moses. Moses is not and will not be the hero of the Exodus. He will not be the hero of his own story. Moses, in fact, is really more the prime villain in his own story until he's interrupted by God. Now, I am who I am. God is telling Moses, I am the most fundamental thing to your universe. I'm the only thing that matters. I'm the only thing that you need to take attention to. The Moses, the most important thing about you, it's me. And the same is true for all of us. And if, if there is a God in heaven... The most important thing about you is not you. It's him who is life itself, who brought you here. It's not what you want to do or what you hope to do or what you, your desires are for your life. None of that is as fundamental to who you are as God. 
And the most important thing about you is not your success. It's not how your kids turn out. It's not whether or not you get into the right sort of marriage or romantic relationship. The most important thing about you is God. He is your fundamental reality. I am who I am. Which also means we get new light shed on, on our failures, on our mistakes. That if the most important part of my identity is to not look within and, and, and do what makes me happy, but it's God, it means in some ways I can't ruin my life. I can't ruin my hopes, my dreams in my life. Because God is the most fundamental reality to me. He's the hero of my story and he interrupts to direct me in new ways. And so that's what God is showing Moses through the fire and through his name. But thirdly then, he, Moses keeps pushing back and so God's going to offer Moses a sign. It's really three signs. But it's, they're really one sign kind of with three different realities packed into them. And Moses offers his third reason why he can't go to Egypt in, in chapter 4, verse 1. It says, Moses answered, but behold, they will not believe me. Neither the Israelites nor Egyptians, they don't like me. They will not believe me or listen to my voice. For they will say, the Lord did not appear to you. So God says, okay, we can, we can deal with that. What's in your hand? And Moses had what any shepherd would have in his hand, a staff. So God says, throw it on the ground. So Moses throws it on the ground. It becomes a snake. And Moses is terrified. He runs away. And God, this is, this is great. God doesn't really help his fear. He says, stop. Go and grab the snake by the tail. Which if you know anything about snakes, that's not the part you grab a snake. You don't grab a snake. By, it's a great way to get bit by a snake. And so Moses there, he's got to, he goes, he grabs the snake by the tail. It becomes a staff again. And God says, okay, Take your hand, put it inside your cloak. And Moses does. He pulls it out. It's white as snow, diseased. It's disgusting. God says, put it back in. So he does. He pulls out. It's healed completely. And God says, and they don't even believe those two things. Here's the third thing you're going to do. You're going to take the Nile River, get some of the Nile River. You're going to pour it out on the ground. It's going to become blood. And he gives it these three signs. And I've always, it's always sort of weirded me out a little bit. I mean, it's like God's putting on a magic show, right? None of the Bibles like this where God's like, hey, let me show you this. It's, none of that happens, it's, and, except for here. So what is going on? And I used to assume, right, this is for Pharaoh. So Pharaoh believes Moses. But Pharaoh doesn't believe Moses the whole time. I mean, God's going to show Pharaoh way cooler things than this. And he's going to ignore God. He's going to reject God. And then you read the Israelites. They, they believed Moses without the signs, so why does God give Moses these three signs? Why do this, this, this magic trick? I think that the person God was giving these signs for is Moses. And Moses is wrapped up in himself as if he has to convince people, as if the entire exodus is based on his capacity to convince Pharaoh to let his free slave labor go. As if Moses is going down there by himself. And God's like, Moses, I will be with you. Throw your staff on the ground. Put your hand in the cloak. Get some blood, some Nile River water. And I think that there's a lesson in there for you and I, that you and I, we need to be taken out of our world, right? The world we think about, the world we dwell on, the world we, 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 that, that, that's in our minds when we go to bed at night. And we need to be removed back into God's world. And that's what God is doing with Moses. He's like, Moses, this isn't your world. This is my world. Where a staff can become a snake, where I can heal a hand at the, the blink of an eye. That our problem too often is we dwell in a world we've made, not in the world God has made. And Moses doesn't get the lesson. He just, this still doesn't work. And the fourth thing Moses will say to God finally is, you know what, God, just send, send someone else. 
Surely there's someone else more qualified than this, which of course there are, but that's not the point. I read this and I ask, why is Moses so slow here? I mean, if, I feel like if God showed up to me in a burning bush, if he made me chase down a, a snake that had, be, that had been my shepherd's staff, right, if he had give, revealed his name to me, I feel like at some point I'd say, all right, we'll do this, okay? Just stop making things become snakes, all right? We'll go. But Moses doesn't. Why? I think the reality is, or our best guess, because Moses doesn't unpack this for us, but he's had 40 years to dwell on, on his failure, 40 years to dwell on his mistakes. And he's frozen, frozen with fear, focused on his own inadequacies so that he can't see God clearly. And because he can't see God clearly, he can't see himself clearly. Can anyone here relate? I bet if we sit down and we talked about your weaknesses, your mistakes, your past failures, what you wish you had done better, what you wish you could do better, the things you're not doing as well as you want to right now, I bet we could have a long, drawn-out conversation. But if we were just to talk about what God is, who God is, what he's doing in the world, what his world is shaped and look like, my guess is our, our conversation would be shorter. That we're well acquainted with our world. And we need to be brought out into the world of the sign, the world of God's name, the world of the burning bush. And that's why God gives Moses these three, three signs. It's not a magic trick. It's to, to drive the, the, the reality home to Moses. Moses, your inadequacies are irrelevant next to me. Your inadequacies don't matter if I'm with you. You don't have to convince Pharaoh. That's not your job. I'm not calling you to go and do the exodus yourself. I will be with you. This is my world. That's my people. I'm sending you. Do you believe that about your own self, that your inadequacies are irrelevant if you, if you know and are present with God? Now, I want to believe that, but it's really hard to believe that. It's hard for Moses to believe that, right? That's why God can reveal himself, and it, it doesn't make inroads into Moses' life. So when you think about, about who you are, as a person, who you are in your inmost self, what most defines who you are? Is it your, your career, your kids, your, your romantic relationships, your desires, what you make happy? Is that, that what you build your life on? Or is it God that enables you to have an unrelenting courage in the face of certain failure? Do you look at your own inadequacies, your own weaknesses with faith, knowing those things will not matter if God is present and next to you through the trial. Now there's a reason those things are hard for us to really believe deep within our souls. There's a reason they're hard for Moses to believe. There's a reason Moses had to hide his face. There's a reason God had to tell Moses, take your shoes off, don't come any closer. And Moses thinks he's unworthy because of his speech or because he won't convince Pharaoh, but his problem is far worse than that. And sadly, a lot of the failures you and I dwell on that, that we think will ruin us, they're all, our, our problem is often, often far worse than what we're aware of. There's a bigger problem behind our fears, our failures, our anxieties. And it's why God has one more place. He's going to go reveal himself to Moses in the night. One of the weirdest stories in all of the Bible. And I almost didn't, didn't tell it, but it, it closes there. It's the answer to the burning bush scene, I'm convinced. Here's what happens. So Moses finally, he goes, all right? God, what, I'm going. Here's what happened once Moses decided to go and head down to Egypt. 
At a lodging place on the way, the Lord met him, met Moses, and sought to put him to death. Then Zipporah, Moses' wife, took a flint and cut off her son's foreskin and touched Moses' feet with it and said, Surely you are bridegroom of blood to me. So he let him alone. It was then that she said, A bridegroom of blood because of the circumcision. What in the world is that about, right? And the reality is most ancient Near East readers who were alive at this time would have instantly known what was happening there. And Moses is a murderer. He's guilty. And the, the man he murdered, his blood is crying out from the, the ground. God, Moses doesn't just not deserve to, or Moses isn't just guilty of, of being a murderer and therefore shouldn't be a deliverer. Right? He's guilty of way more than that. And so God, who's called Moses to go and deliver Israel, now has to deal with something else first. That Moses, just like Pharaoh, deserves to die. And God is coming in this night to collect his debt. And Zipporah understood this, which is why she sheds the blood of her firstborn through circumcision, which to us is just weird. It's just different. And yet in that day, many ancient Near Eastern customs assumed that, that somehow shedding blood, especially circumcision of your firstborn, meant the God who was angry at you would be warded off. And so she takes the flint, she circumcises her son, she sheds the blood of the son so that Moses can be forgiven. And God relents. God doesn't kill Moses. And this is disturbing because it's meant to be. That's why the Bible continually uses sacrifice and bloodshed as a means for you and I dealing with our mistakes, our failures. This, this is disturbing, but yet this is the night where Moses' life changes. Because when he gets down to Egypt, he's not going to need his brother to speak. He's going to speak for himself, and he's going to speak boldly and courageously, and God's going to use him in, in powerful ways. To me, this is the moment when Moses' life changed, when he's freed from his crippling fear. And from here on, Moses, he's not going to be perfect. He's going to make mistakes, but he's going to show a bravery and a courage in the face of incredible odds. Because after all, he's going to the most powerful figure in the world as a shepherd from the desert saying, let Israel go. And this God I met in the wilderness, this bush burning, he's coming, right? I mean, that just sounds crazy. And Moses is going to go and do it. Which raises the question for us, what changed on that night? What changed for Moses on that night when God showed up to him? And so Moses came face to face with his own guilt. He didn't just deserve exile for his failures, he deserved death. And that's why he had to hide his face from God when the bush is burning bright. That's why God had to tell Moses, take your shoes off, don't come any closer. You're guilty. You can't come near me. I want to know you, but I can't. And in fact, the closer I get to you, the more threatened you are. And we see that in the night. And Moses learns that evening he's dead. And he also learns the blood sacrifice leads to life. And as weird as it is to us, Gershom's blood, shed for his father Moses, saves him. And maybe you hear that again and think, that, that's ridiculous. And it, and it is, because grace is always ridiculous. It's the only way to be taken out of yourself, out of your fears, out of your failures, out of your world, and into God's world. 
And of course, it's not the blood of this son, which ultimately let Moses be forgiven and go in freedom and be free of his fear. It's the blood of another son, which God is going to send thousands of years later in Jesus, who shed his blood that you and I could come. Where we could, if, we, if the bush ever appears to us, God wouldn't have to tell us to take our shoes off and don't come any closer. We wouldn't have to hide our face anymore because his own son blood was shed that you and I might know God. That we could leave our shoes on. That if you're in Christ, God has taken failure off the table for you. You can't ruin your life. That's, that's why Christ was ruined for you and why he was restored for you. And yet there's an irony here, right? Because the only way that you can't ruin your life is to know that you've ruined your life beyond repair. And that God has to interrupt your life with sacrifice and with grace. If you think you could still just do it yourself and you can just build your own life up from scratch, you're not ready to receive the message. You're not ready to encounter God in the night like Moses did, where he's helpless and he has to watch as someone else's blood is shed so he could live. And that's the gospel. Is Christ is ruined, so I never will be. And Christ is restored back to life out of the grave so that I will be. And for me, for you, that means your kids can just be your kids. Your job can just be your job. Your marriage, your romantic relationships can just be that. You don't have to earn your identity. You don't have to live to create meaning in your life. God gives it to you freely. But these things aren't who you are. And the best part is even when you fail at them, and you will, you're just driven back to the place where you're reminded, oh, Christ was ruined for me, so I can't be ruined. It's freeing. It'll give you the courage to do really hard things like, like friendship, like romantic relationships, like raising kids, like having a job, like going back to your old country where you'd been driven out, where you ruined your life, and telling them you've met God in the wilderness and he set you free. And he's on his way now to set everyone who is slaves free. Let's pray.